righty. Um, hello, everybody. We'll go ahead and get started. I see some people still coming into the room. Um, it is 10.01, so yeah. All right, so welcome. Um, I'm uh, Most of you are clients on here, I believe. We got some, we got a few others that have joined that I haven't met. Um, I'm David Adams. This is our Adams Wealth Partners quarter one market update webinar. Um, I've got Carson Odom and Miles Zuger on the phone as well, or on uh, Zoom as well from my team. Both are certified financial planners and uh, partners and co-advisors of mine. And so really um, what I want to kind of go through today, we've got we've got some slides and different data points that I think will really bring um, some, some concrete facts to a year that feels, especially going into election year, where there's a lot of emotions swirling around and a lot of fear and anxiety. And also at the same time, ironically enough, the market's been hitting all-time highs. So very unusual time. Uh, I feel like every year lately I say that, like this year it starts to feel different or it's heavier, or there's more fear. But really, I think that's just a norm these days. Um, there's a lot of good things happening in the stock market, obviously, with it hitting all-time highs. And there's also, you know, reason to hit pause when you look at things like um, inflation and what's going to happen with interest rates. And again, a, a contentious election coming up. Um, so our goal today is to do a couple of things. One, to give you the information, um, fact-based, and then two, to do Q&A. So at the bottom of your screen, uh, you should be able to hit the Q&A button. You can type in your questions. Carson, Miles, and I will try. We'll answer them as we go if we see them. If not, we'll answer all of them at the end. So just be patient with us. But uh, definitely, uh, we want this to be about things you want to hear. Um, and we'll go ahead and get started. Carson, Miles, you want to pop on as well? Share yeah. Your Happy to. Yeah, thanks for the introduction. Yeah, good morning. All right. Um, Carson, one of y'all, you want to kind of take over, go through some of the slides, and I'll be here as well, and we'll kind of just just kind of keep this thing pretty organic. Let's do it. Um, well, let's let's talk about one of the most frequently discussed items over this past year is cash. And, you know, two years ago, I think we never talked about cash. And if we did talk about cash, it was how it was making 0.0-nothing percent sitting at the bank. And nowadays, average rate that you can probably get at a traditional bank is somewhere in the fours, more than likely. And we have access to some money markets here at Raymond James that are paying in the mid fives. And every single one of our client meetings is always starting out with something regards to how's your cash sitting and how much are you making on interest just to make sure your cash is being productive since it used to be such an unproductive asset. And the chart that we have up on the screen, this is a total of all money market funds over the past five years, historically, there is over $8 trillion sitting in cash on the sidelines. That's not just dead, it's being productive. It's a productive asset that's making a good yield. So there's a couple things to take from this slide. One is that's a lot of cash on the sidelines. And what happens when rates aren't as high and that cash goes somewhere else? What happens whenever that cash comes yeah, out I'll of money? I'll jump in. That's a good point, Carson. Dry, I call it dry powder. Anytime you have a lot of cash on the sidelines, um, that means to Carson's point, if rates go down and all of a sudden it's like, ah, now I'm only getting 2.5% on that money market. And I'm, I've been watching the stock market go up, up, up. I feel like I'm missing out. There's that you know fear of missing out that creeps up and that money usually will go into stocks. Um, so we, we view that as just a good thing, A, because you're making money on your cash, which is great finally for the investor, and B, because the stock market has there's some engine to it that could help kind of fuel it if uh, things change on that front. Yep. And which leads to the next point. So one, that's a lot of dry powder. What happens if it goes to work? But also 
what happens if it doesn't go to work and it just continues to sit in cash? And Miles, I'll let you speak to this. Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's important to have a plan right now. I mean, you look at, yeah, 5% money market cash feels really good. It's felt really good for the last, call it 12, six to 12 months. Um, the overall economy maybe doesn't feel very strong. And we're going to touch on that a little bit later here to show maybe why that's incorrect or correct, but we'll, we'll hit on that. But I think just with where we sit right now, the Fed's been paused for six months or so now. And the, the talk of a Fed rate cut is on the uh, horizon. And so it's important to have that plan for when they do start cutting rates, because as this chart illustrates here, when the Fed begins that rate cutting cycle, money market funds fall off extremely fast. So as David said, yeah, some of that cash on the sidelines may go to stocks just from investors feeling like they are missing out and they want to, to get in on the, the ride of the stock market. Others have that cash as a safer part of their plan. So what are some alternatives when yields start to fall, but you still want that cash? For immediate emergency funds, I think it's good to still have it in in that, that cash accounts. Money markets aren't going to go back to zero like they were a couple of years ago. When they start cutting rates, they're probably going to go to somewhere in the three to three and a half percent range, which is still a good yield on a savings account. But there are also some alternatives, whether it's bond funds or if it's longer term money into equities. But the the big point here is just to have a plan for that cash. And if you're a client of ours and you're sitting on a lot of cash, on a lot of cash, start talking to us about what some alternatives are there. And we can have that conversation and and help just begin the repositioning of that for the next phase of of where rates are headed. Yeah, I mean, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, the, it's easy, you know, after 10 years of making no money on cash to get a lot of five and a half percent. If I made five and a half percent for the rest of my life, I'd be happy with that. And it's easy to think that and feel that. And I get it. Um, you know, I'm not numb to emotions being an investor myself. I get why that rate feels good. But as we know, inflation has been quite a bit higher than that. And again, to Miles's point, cash is not going to stay here long term, more than likely. And when it falls, it falls really fast. So all let's take advantage of it. And, and let's also have a plan to both of their points so that when that changes, we're not like, oh, my gosh, what do we do now? Um, just keep the emotions low, uh, stay offensive, strategic, and be talking about kind of where the puck's going next. So. Yep. That's uh, that's called reinvestment risk. Essentially, that um, once your money's freed up in the future, it's going to be harder to get as good of a return um, later on. So yes, your annualized rate for a money market right now over the next 12 months, where the rate to stay the same is call it five and a half percent. Yes. But more than likely, your return is not going to be that because the Fed's going to lower interest rates. So your actual rate of return on your cash for 2024 might be somewhere between three and four percent. So that's why we talk so much about how it can be risky to keep money in cash only because of reinvestment risk. We like cash. We always want it to be there for a safe place for an emergency fund or big upcoming expenses, but a long-term play, it's not a good investment. And that's uh, on us to be proactive and to not just also get lazy and be like, well, we put all this money in cash. Now we can sit back and watch our clients make five and a half percent. That's a, that's a lazy take on it. And we're not doing that, but we are, we are optimistic having that as a tool for the first time in years and years. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So for example, this just echoes the points that we're continuing to make. In the previous five hiking cycles since 1990, the Fed has paused an average of 10 months between its last hike and its first cuts. We're at what, months five or six or something like that. We don't expect a cut and you know, every, everybody was expecting a cut in March, but now that's kind of off the table. It could be June. Um, so we're about right on average for how long the Fed's going to potentially keep rates where they are. And then on average, stock and bond returns have been higher during the pause period than in easing periods, because usually um, the Fed starts 
backing off on interest rates, lowering interest rates, because there's some signals telling them that they need to, either the economy is getting worse um, and or um, yeah, or that the economy is getting worse. So um, just a forewarning to say that yep. returns on other asset classes are potentially good during a Fed pause period. And just to hit on inflation a little bit here. So, um, you know, it's been a big topic of conversation. It's what's driven interest rates to the levels they are today. Um, this is just illustrating what happens to stocks and bond performance after peak in inflation, which we saw in June of 22 at a little over 9% there. So, I mean, when you look out 12 months from the peak in inflation, which we're about six months away from now, it's been pretty much positive returns across the board for both asset classes with the average being about 18% for stocks and for bonds just shy of 7%. All this to say, I think um, we don't want to ignore either side of the plan. We want to focus on stocks and bonds. But the big conversation that we're starting to have this year is if you can lock in fixed income at a 5 or a 6% yield on those longer duration bonds, it's worth having that conversation. And maybe instead of being 90, 10, like we have been over the last few years, because there was no real return to get out of out of the fixed income side of the portion, out of the plan, there really is return to be had there. And so we're having the conversation with some investors, especially some of our older clients who it's time to maybe take a look at those allocations and adjust them down because you can take some risk off the table, get a return in the fixed income and just provide a little bit more protection to the downside for those bad years that will eventually come. And I'll add to that. I, I can remember a, a bunch of seminars I've done over the last 10 years where I had a slide up um, speaking to groups and I would say something like 80-20 is the new 60-40. And what I meant by that was, you know, my 65-year-old client that, you know, in the textbook was supposed to be 60% stock, 40% bonds. A lot of them were 80-20, which sounds aggressive, but that's because bonds were paying one and 2%, cash was paying nothing, and they couldn't afford to have 40% of their money um, you know, th that unproductive. So now it's actually going back to like that, you know, somewhere maybe it's 70, 30 or 65, 35, we're starting to have that conversation. A, our clients that have been clients for 20 years have gotten a little bit older over the last five years and B, now rates are paying more. So it's a great time for two reasons to potentially lower the risk on a portfolio, actually three reasons and C, the stock market's at an all-time high. So there's a lot of things like, it feels like when, when times are good, like now on, on paper, um, a lot of times people put their head down and say, oh, my stocks are making money. We don't need to do anything. And this might be a time to have that conversation to de-risk a little bit, not a lot, not out of fear, but just proactive. And so that's what we're doing with all of our clients and kind of individual meetings is taking a look at that. So um, just wanted to highlight where we've been over the past three years. So this is a chart just saying, here's the U.S. inflation rate and how the Fed responded to it with their Fed funds rate. And essentially, They've held steady at about five and a quarter um, right now on the Fed funds rate, and the inflation rate has come down drastically. And what this means is prices are not decreasing. That is not what it means when inflation is coming down. What's happened over since its peak at nine over nine percent in inflation rate? What's happened since then is what's referred to as disinflation. It's not deflation. Deflation would mean we're at a negative percentage on the U.S. inflation rate, meaning prices are actually coming down. Now, prices are only increasing at a lower rate year over year. So prices are still increasing. Stuff at the grocery store everywhere you go is more expensive, and it's more expensive in different pockets out there. However, 
um, it's just not increasing at as fast of a pace. So the Fed funds rate being at five and a quarter, our expectation is the Fed's trying to do two things. Keep the economy from going into a recession. We're about to um, touch on employment here in just a second. And also, they don't want that inflation number to go up again. So right now, their focus is on keeping rates elevated for the time being until they see inflation come down even further to their goal rate of 2%, or if stuff and the economy starts crumbling, like unemployment rates start shooting up, then they'll ease the brakes. They'll ease. And that's, I'm glad you brought that up. I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say just out and about, um, yeah, it looks like uh, prices are going down. And again, you know, it, it's confusing, but it makes sense when you look at it this way. No, prices were going up at 9%. Now they're going up at 3%. They're still going up. And that's all. That's if a price, if the price of eggs went from eight bucks to 10 bucks, they're still going up from 10 bucks. Maybe they're 10 bucks and 40 cents now, something like that. So it's still something to look at. We're not, we're not, you know, going the other way yet, but at least some of the ridiculous inflation numbers have cooled back a little bit. Can you guys hear me? I said my internet was a little unstable. Yeah, you're good. We okay, can hear cool. you. You're kind of your video is cutting out a little bit, but we can hear you. Give it a shot. And if not, we'll take over. Oh. Yep. There you went. Um, so I think uh all that this chart's showing is how much inflation has impacted um the different classes of goods over uh let's see, this is over the past 25, 30 years. Um and the number one and number two things, I think, is what everybody can agree on. It's um, hospital services and college intuition. Um, it has just been astronomical compared to the average CPI rate, um, which is right around here, just over 50%, right around food and beverages and housing, which is all around that core CPI rate. Um, everything else, the big, the big takeaway here is that technology and innovation drives prices down. So if you look at this chart, what has decreased in price over time, televisions, toys, computer softwares, uh, wireless telephone services, those have been driven down because of technology and innovation, essentially what's been the king of our economy over the past 20, 25 years. Um, everything else is increasing at alarming rates. Um, I think each and every year that goes by, we say it can't keep going at this pace, but it still continues to go at this pace. Yeah. Let's see. Next up, um, really just looking at the job market um, going on from what I said earlier, the the Federal Reserve, they have uh, their goal is twofold. One, to keep unemployment rate low and also to get inflation back to their target at 2%. So as you can tell, the job market, everyone, since the Fed started raising rates two years ago, everyone was expecting the job market just to explode. And we feel like that's what caused the stock market to really go um, into a bear market in 2022 was everybody was expecting the economy to crumble and it didn't. The economy didn't crumble. Unemplo unemployment is still sub 4% um, and it's lowest it's been over the past 50 years is 3.4%. We're only 30 basis points below the lowest it's ever been in the past 50 years. So if there's anything keeping this economy strong, it's definitely the job market um, and consumer spending, which we'll touch on. I mean, on. so Carson, essentially we... We kind of went back. We had the the COVID blip there, where unemployment went way up, and then we kind of we're back to we're back to full employment where we were kind of before COVID. Um, just kind of those jobs that went away kind of came back, and we're kind of back to status quo. But historically, on the on the good side of the trend line, exactly right. Welcome back, Miles. We see. Yeah, I'm I'm here. <laughs> um, and then on this one, just 
I mean, when you look at the history, and this is dating back to looks like 2003 there, um, across all age gaps, this is the the healthiest that consumers have still been. I mean, we're at pretty much record low in bankruptcies, even though things are more expensive, inflation is still at record highs, but coming down. Um, it's, it's just good to see that consumers are still healthy. And part of that was because of the, one of the first slides we looked at where people have just stockpiled cash over the last three, four, three or four years. And so, yes, they're spending some of that down, which I think we maybe have a slide on that as well later on, but um, people have plenty of cash in the sidelines and they've had that to be able to meet these higher expenses. Now it's, where do we go from here over the next two, three, four, five years? Yeah. And, and with um, like Miles said, savings rates were way up during COVID. Obviously people have now that's down low and people have spent a lot of that cash and now, you know, debt's kind of consumer debt. And you can see here foreclosures and some of those things are going up the wrong direction, but so they are going in the wrong direction, which is bad. But what's good is historically, as you can see, still way, way towards the bottom. Um, we're still saving more than historical and we're still um, in debt less than we have been historically, even though the trend line is starting to work back in the wrong direction. So the question would be, or the fear would be, if inflation keeps going on and on and on, eventually debt's going to keep going up, savings will keep going down, and that could that could be a bad sign. Or we figure out how to get inflation in control, under control, which is why the Fed's very motivated to do that for Biden and for Trump, whoever the next president is. Any president is always wanting to see the Fed kind of assist that. So that's kind of where we're at there. Oh, this is, that leads into this slide. Go ahead. Yeah, perfectly. Um, really with... Um, this is U.S. household debt service, so the percentage of their payments going towards debt as a percentage of their overall disposable income. So over the past, call it 15 years, we're still right below, if not on average, where this percentage rate is. And you got to think everybody thought this this rise in interest rates is all of a sudden going to break the consumer. A, um, a couple stats are 90% of outstanding mortgages are sub 5% right now. So yes, it is extremely expensive to go out and get a mortgage if you want to buy a new home. Prices are still elevated in a lot of areas and interest rates are higher. So it just makes the affordability of purchasing a new home, especially if you don't have an existing home to roll over into your new house, is astronomical. But for those that do have real estate um, that got a 2.8% interest rate a couple of, in 2021 or 3%, they're locked in. So this change in interest rates for their mortgage has no effect when it comes to their housing. But that is also why housing prices have stayed pretty high is because a lot of people are not moving and therefore inventory is still low and the prices have cooled a little bit, but they haven't crashed. I mean, they were so out of control during COVID, especially being here in Nashville and I know other markets as well, that you would have thought, okay, after something like that, you're going to have a big pullback. And we didn't really have that pullback. We just had it, prices stay, but maybe normalize and people aren't, aren't offering you know, 10% above purchase price, so you're not getting multiple offers, but the prices are still high for the reason Carson just said, people don't want to leave their homes. Why would you leave a 3% mortgage for a 7% mortgage um, unless you have a bunch of cash and able to pay cash or roll an existing home over? And um, I'm not going to say this quote exactly, but I believe it's roughly 80 to 85% of average debt out there is fixed rate. So yes, rates are higher. If you're going to go out and buy a new car, buy a new house, on a fresh credit card, yes, your interest rate is going to be extremely high. However, of the existing debt that is out there, over 80%, I believe, is on a fixed rate. So again, it does not have an impact on those who have outstanding debt. And why I think this rate, this 9.78% that we're looking at is still relatively low, even though we've been at a higher interest rate uh, environment over the past couple of years.
And, and speaking on debt here, touching on the uh, the national debt, which is a big topic of discussion. Um, it's it, you know, there's a lot of talk about around the numbers of it, just the sheer size. We're at, I think, thirty four some odd trillion, hmm. and I believe the um, maybe flip, flip back to that one for a second, Carson. I believe if, but when you look at things from a percentage perspective, this is not the worst that's ever been. Which, as numbers get bigger, the percentages change as well. So it's important to look at both sides of this. But if, but looking at this, I mean, we're at a little shy of two point five percent percent of GDP that's going towards national debt. The highest was, you know, a little over 3% there in the mid 90s. And so we're still at healthy levels. Obviously, as you can see, they're sharply trending in the wrong direction, spiking up there. But looking at things, this is not the worst that it's ever been when you look at the percentage of GDP. And I think it's also important to note that um, there's going to be solutions to this, hopefully, nice. whether that's taxing or or growing out of it as we have in the past. I don't know what the ultimate solution will be, but... Um, I think, you know, we, we, we found solutions in the past and we're hopeful for one again. I have to say something. I see the 34 trillion is a big number. I remember speaking to uh, an investment club. I think a couple of the gentlemen who are in that club um, are on this call. Um, and we were talking about, gosh, what are we going to do if the debt, national debt ever hits 20 trillion? That's the end of the dollar, uh, no longer the main currency in the world. And, you know, everything's going to hit, hit heck in a handbasket. And, and here we are at 34 trillion. That doesn't mean that that's a good thing, but there was a point our chief economist at the time was saying that national debt doesn't matter. He was being dramatic. What he meant by that was it was more about the ratio of GDP growth to the debt. And as long as you keep that in check compared to the rest of the world, you can still be the prettiest house on an ugly block when it comes to debt. Um, but that's just, that's a huge number and it may be 40 and 50 before we know it. So anyway. Yep. Speaking of that, I think you stole my line, prettiest house on an ugly block. However, um, it's also important to remember the scale of the U.S. compared to the rest of the world. This is the top 10 countries ranked by nominal GDP. Um, China's a close second. However, even when you compare it to the third largest country in the world, oh, wow. we are still six to seven times bigger than Germany that's in third place. So just the overall scale of the United States when we're talking about, you know, $34 trillion of debt and the fact that we're running a almost a $2 trillion deficit. Um, I, it just blows my mind how much bigger the U.S. economy is than the rest of the world. And even as China is closing in, there, there's a lot of headlines how they're starting to have their troubles, particularly on the real estate sector. Mm -hmm. Yep. And it's interesting too, uh, we don't have a slide on this, but just about uh, birth rates and how essentially China and a lot of countries in the world are going to be in population decline over the next 20, 30 years. That's a, another subject for another time, but. Yeah. Just looking here at the at people wonder how can the equity markets keep going higher? How can the bond markets keep going higher? Part of the reason is just the liquidity that we have in the system. So compared to any other countries, our equity markets, our, our fixed income markets are just there's so much more liquidity, which provides massive, <clears throat> massive positives when you look at innovation, entrepreneurship and the ability to just wealth build through investing. It's not something that's available in all countries. I think it, it's something that a lot of us here take uh, for granted, just being able to easily buy shares in publicly traded companies. That's not not how it works all around the world. And so um, we've just, over the years, in addition to GDP and having to lead there, we've just continued to expand um, our capitalization across financial markets. And, and it's just like a, if this was an individual balance sheet, like a client that we were working with, it's the same thing. We talk about your buckets and liquidity. Liquidity is very, very important. So just knowing that you have 
extra cash or bonds or money outside of IRAs or private real estate that's tied up that you can get your hands on, gives you a lot of flexibility for growth and innovation and starting a new business or paying off a car or a house or a rental rental property, that sort of thing. So that's always very important. So it's, it's positive to see that on the country front that we lead the way as far as uh, liquidity and size of our financial market. Yeah, just the last note, um, just growth among G7 nations. The U.S. has, of course, led the way over 2023. And, you know, historically, 15 years ago, you might have a portfolio that's half U.S. based and half um, in the rest of the world. And it just hasn't been the case over the past few years, even though we always hear that international stocks are cheap and you should balance, you know, your ratio, you should have more um, of an overall position in international companies. And the reality is, yes, that might be the case right now that we're underweighted international, but, and they might be cheap on a balance sheet and a trading basis. However, growth has to come from somewhere. And we're still firm believers that the sheer size of the U.S. and the emphasis on technology and, inf and innovation is going to continue to hold the U.S. in its growth um, for the coming years. And with that, when you look at investments, it's important just to, to remember that diversification is something that's important. It's something that we talk about with all of our clients in planning. I mean, last year, the, the top five tech companies made up 24% of the entire S&P 500 index. It's, it's the highest it's ever been. Um, and those leaders can change. So it's important just to have that have that diversification because in, I think there's another slide on this one, but it just shows, Carson, if you want to flip to that one. Yeah. It shows when last year people were really talking about the Magnificent Seven. And if you look here from the, the beginning of 22 to the beginning of 23, there was a massive drawdown about 43%. Last year, all anybody was talking about was how much the Magnificent Seven were, were up and how much they were positive. But had you just been in a good diversified portfolio, you pretty much got to the same point without having to suffer a massive 50% drop in your portfolio. And I think the big question is, yeah, it works out to hold on to those tech companies if you can stomach that in the beginning of January 23, I wonder what a lot of people would have done had they not had an advisor, had been invested across those those big seven companies. What are they doing in January 23? Are they actually able to stay invested so that they can make those gains back? Because that's part of, of being able to hang on. But if you're diversified, it makes it a much smoother ride and gets you to the exact same point. Yeah. This slide specifically is talking about if you're a client, you've probably heard us mention our Gibbs equity income portfolio. That's what this slide specifically is from. And um, we've you know, talked about it a lot over the past couple of years, how important it is to protect on the downside, capture as much as the upside as you can. But even this chart, when just looking at specifically the S&P 500, just how much of a smoother ride it has than the highest tech stocks. The highest tech stocks, the Magnificent Seven, this says, has almost double the volatility of dividend payers over the same time frame, And that's, that's a lot to stomach. Yeah. Um, it's one of those things we we bring up this chart often where a uh, diversified portfolio can always kind of feel like you're either, uh, oh, but I still lost money or, oh, man, I didn't make as much money. But the reality is if, if you can start at point A and get to point B and it take you and you get to the same point, but it's essentially a lot smoother ride, I think everyone would welcome a smoother ride. And even over all these periods, Yes, you lost money, for example, from 2000 to 2002, but look how much of a difference it makes losing 15% comparing it to 40% in the S&P. And we talked about that in 2022. Imagine only being down, the S&P was down 20, NASDAQ was down around 35. Average diversified portfolio, because bonds had a bad year in 2022, was maybe down 15. 
But still, if you're down, you know, in comparison, if you're down 50%, you have to make a 100% rate of return. And, and there it's were hedge not, funds in, um, that were down 50% in 2022 because they, they took big bets on technology, on companies like the Magnificent Seven, or even crypto, which was down 70, 80%. Um, so that happened a lot. And then, so to Carson's point, if we have a client, Hey, we're down 14 or we're down 18% when you could have been down 30%, that just makes the next year, you look at 2023 markets up 20 S&P's up 26%. And we have, let's say we have clients up 13 or 16 or 15.9, like this says, and that's easy to be like, but we're not even keeping up with the S&P. We have to go back and say, you know, let's look at, let's look at the last 20 year track record and why the S&P is a terrible benchmark, but it's also what most, it's the hardest part of our job. It's what most people, if they haven't worked with us for a while and we haven't coached them through it, most people think that their portfolio should be compared to the S&P. And the reality is if you see this total return of almost the exact same point, 390%, which is remarkable that it does that, you got to the same place with call it half the volatility and you're still like, well, then why still wouldn't I do the S&P if I get to the same place? Big reasons because you're not there are going to be times where you pull money out. So when you're pulling money out, that you know exaggerates this and makes it more important to lose less than the down years. I could show the same thing where somebody's pulling out thirty thousand or three or four percent of their portfolio a year, and it would be much better to have the portfolio on the right, the diversified portfolio that's more risk managed, than to have the S and P and be down forty percent in two thousand and two thousand and two. Oh, gosh, you guys are ahead of me. You did this. Okay, go ahead. I'll shut up. Uh, no, I, that's this is exactly what you were talking about. That's why I flipped to this side of just how, um, you know, if somebody's pulling money out, we have an example here of um, somebody pulling money out. Uh, you know, we always talk about the 4% rule. Let's say we start with a million dollar portfolio. They're pulling out 4% and there's either um, a, a diversified portfolio or there's the overall benchmark and the ending portfolio value. For example, for somebody that's pulling out 4%, this is on a 50-50 portfolio. So yes, taking the S&P 500 50% and taking the Bloomberg Ag at 50%, the 4% rule over a 20, 25 year period still works perfectly, even with half the overall volatility, because half of your entire portfolio is not even in the stock market, it's in bonds. And while you pull out 4%, 25 years later, you still have a million dollars. And what's interesting is when we run this analysis and we actually increase um, the weighting to the S&P 500, this ending portfolio value ends up getting worse only because um, there's the higher volatility in the down years and the first three years of the stock market were negative um, in this illustration. And this is an illustration. We know life is very, very specific and different. And there's a lot of variables that go into this and everyone's uh, specific situation. And very few people just say, here's a million bucks 20 years ago and then don't ever add or take money out you know, over 20 right. years. But it's still, it's it's a great round number an easy way to make the point Carson's making that yeah and what's nice about this is that this is illustrating inflation as a part of the plan as well so it's your four percent plus inflation every year showing a higher withdrawal um I think clients always ask us you know again as this slide tells the four percent rule still apply and this just shows that it certainly does yeah I'll get back to here um go ahead Miles yeah I mean on this one really just to, to point out that you know, the annual returns of bonds, the the gray line is showing where uh, returns ended for the year. The red line is showing what that points out is that in almost every calendar year at some point, even bonds are negative for the year and illustrating in 22, as you can see there, just how bad that bad of a year that was for bonds. Worst in 40, 50 yeah. years, worst ever. 
Yeah. Was I mean, just- yeah, from this chart, it really was the worst ever. We're showing almost 50 years here. So um, there really was just nowhere to hide last year or in 2022. And um, that's what made it, you know, as rough of a year as it was. But a good diversified portfolio was still down 15 or 16%, which I think is important to note when bonds themselves were down 13%. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Same thing for the equity markets. <clears throat> um, there's always going to be intra-year declines almost every single year, not every single year, but a lot of years, there is a correction of some kind. A correction is when the market falls 10% or more in a given year. And even in 2023, where the market ended up, S&P ended up up 24%, there was still a correction that year, still down 10%. And there's a lot of years where the stock market can end up positively, but experience a pretty large decline. And especially, I mean, 2020 is just a prime example of how the market peak to trough was down 34%. And I think like 33 days, one of the fastest drops in history. Never seen anything like it in 20 years. And I don't think the market's ever done anything. I mean, it's the fastest drop. And I'm looking here, there's a couple of the year, one of the year back in like the 80s, it was down 34, but only finished up two. That was the biggest peak to trough swing I've ever seen. Um, I think that's ever happened in the market. It was the fastest correction ever, fastest bear market in the history of the market. Um, also, real quick, I want to say, as we have a few more slides left, go ahead, if you want, um, start typing in some questions below um, if you want to go ahead and get ahead of that. And if we don't have any questions, yeah. that's fine, too. But Yep. Um, just illustrating here, you know, all that bear market since 1950. So looking at 2022, um, there's a quick one there in, in 2020 also, but I mean, 2022 was really a pretty average year. I mean, the average, uh, bear market is about lasts about 10 months or 280 some days. And we were at, you know, 282 days in 2022. So, um, a pretty average year there. You can see there's been some, some much longer and deeper ones, um, in years past, but from the point of 2022, as bad as it felt for the most part, it was just pretty average. Yeah. Let's see. Um, I, I, I love this. This is, um, this is extremely interesting. Here are annual returns of the S&P 500 for almost the past 100 years. And what this goes to show is on January 1st, for you to bet, put your money on, what's the stock market going to do this year? Who's thinking knows? I mean, this is so random how the overall stock market performs. But one thing that stands out to me is there are more positive years than there are negative years. And almost to a T, which is on this next chart, is three out of four years, the stock market is up. You can literally see 75.2% of the time, the stock market is up over any given year. Which is why, sorry to interrupt, Carson, when a client says, you know, should we put money in the market now or should we wait a while since the market's high? It's like, well, there's always a 75% chance that the market's going to be up. So in theory, you're always better to invest your money now. However, we also understand like if a client has a hundred thousand bucks with us in the market and they just sold a business for 5 million and the stock market's at an all-time high, we are going to be, you know, it's a little bit of market timing. We're going to say, you know what, let's, let's put some of that money to work and then let's drip it in the market over the next X amount of months or year or whatever, um, just to be smart because it's such a large amount of capital at, at one point in time. But generally speaking, this is why dollar cost averaging works so well. Hey, I don't want to try to time the market. I'm going to take 5000 a month and just put it in on the 15th every month. And I know 75% of the time, that's going to be a good entry point. And I think it also, this is a great slide to illustrate just our three bucket strategy that we use with almost every client. It, it just shows 
to what David said, shorter term, it's the reason we keep cash, but the longer term, those retirement type accounts, those 20, 30 year type time horizons, that's why we want to be more aggressive with the equities in those portfolios. Yep, absolutely. Does anyone know what's going on in 2024? <laughs> what do we have this year? An election that's very similar to uh, 2020. It looks like it's going to be the same to... Uh, contestants for lack of a better term and it's um going to be contentious and there's probably going to be a couple of curveballs um we we could do a whole presentation on that and i don't want to get anybody upset about uh i think about uh one comparison i saw it was like the exact same as 2020 in that we had the 49ers chiefs in the super bowl it was a leap year and these presidential candidates going on and it's like deja oh, yeah, deja vu all over again um really miles i'll let you um, echo on this too, but regardless of who ends up being president, um, it does not matter who's overall in control. Um, the stock market's still going to perform. Yes, there are individual policies that each president or each Congress can make that can be better or worse for the overall United States. But regardless of what happens, what we have seen since the existence of the United States is that companies will persevere. And if it's stricter tax codes and higher taxes, companies are going to find a way to get deductions and not give all of their money to the government. There's always going to be people who find ways to maximize their bottom lines, regardless of the overall environment. Yep. Yeah. And just, and just important to note that, I mean, we say it all the time, but not investing with politics. Um, I mean, I know like when Obama got in, people wanted to get out of the market. When Trump got in, people wanted to get out of the market. But I mean, you can see on the bottom there, a lot more up years than down years. And if you were on the sidelines, that's, I mean, the worst thing you could have done for your overall financial plan and retirement plan. And, and the reality is, and there's other charts that show this, that the best returns in the market, it's usually, whether it's a Republican or Democratic president, it's a divided Congress. So the market loves um, some, you know, basically um, checks and balances and, you know, Republican Senate and the Democratic House and a Republican president or a Democratic president. That's what the market likes the best. Um and that's more than likely what we're going to have, even whether we get uh, Trump or Biden in there, they're both going to be kind of hamstrung a little bit with uh, uh, with the House and the Senate, more than likely. So, um, checks and balances. Yep. Oh, boy. Nobody wants to see that. Get that out of there. I agree. <laughs> um, the, the one comment that we've heard recently is who decided to make election year in a leap year where we have to get one extra day of all this crap that's going on. <laughs> <laughs> um good perspective good stuff guys thanks for uh sharing those slides um but we have one question as of now which either means we did a fantastic job or all of you had signed off and nobody's interested or you're, you're it's time for lunch whatever um but in all seriousness here's one question you hit on this david uh, or team but looking for more context would you expect china's economic challenges to positively or negatively impact u.s equities you know and it depends. One thing we've done uh, on a micro level as a firm is uh, most of our portfolios have been very low international, meaning back in the day when, you know, in the early 2000s, when I started, if uh, a client was 100% stock, they were probably 50% US, 50% international, and a big part of international was China. Now that same client would be like 80% US, 20% international. So we definitely favor US equities anyway in the US economy for a lot of the reasons we mentioned earlier. Um if China, I mean, if the U.S. sneezes, the rest of the world gets a cold. If China sneezes, that doesn't necessarily mean we get a cold. It will impact 
companies here because a lot most of them have operations in China, um, but also things depending on the president and policies. If all of a sudden China starts struggling and we start bringing manufacturing back here, or we raise taxes on them, and all of a sudden it becomes pro-U.S. Whatever, there's 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 opportunities where the U.S. value companies can still do um, very well and make money despite China. So I'm not too worried about China. I'm more worried about our economy and China being the second biggest. We have to we have to watch it, but we're not heavily invested in their economy. Anything you guys would add, Carson or Miles? Yeah, I, I would say I know the the United States specifically. Um, I probably could have gotten a chart on this, but um, has taken a lot of pressure off how much they import from China and has shifted a lot of that to Mexico specifically. So the U.S. has lessened its dependence on China over the past few years, and even like David mentioned, internally we've taken any sort of allocation that we've had uh, allocated to China. You know, we still have a small position in emerging markets overall. But China specifically is basically nothing inside of any of our portfolios. So we specifically have made the choice and even the managers that we choose to hold in client portfolios to almost completely eliminate China just because of the risks associated there. I don't see any more questions. Um, well, well, thank you all for joining. Um, hopefully that was helpful. We're gonna, we'll make a copy of this uh, recording of this and we'll send this out as an email to everybody um, and post it on social media and that sort of thing. And, um, but yeah, we appreciate it. We love doing this kind of stuff. If you are a client and this brought up any questions, reach out to us. If you're not a client, we can help you let us know, of course. And uh, we'll keep doing these. As long as we have people interested, we'll keep kind of doing these. It's uh, good for us to share the information. And I just, I have a gut feeling this year there's going to be plenty to talk about, especially as we get into the summer and then into the election season. So we'll do we'll do another one of these closer to time. So thank you, everybody. Thank you, Carson and Miles. And uh, we'll be in touch. Any opinions are those of myself and not necessarily those of Raymond James. Expressions of opinion are as of this date and are subject to change without notice. The information contained in these podcasts do not purport to be a complete description of the securities market or developments referred to in this material. The information has been obtained from sources considered to be reliable, but we do not guarantee that the foregoing material is accurate or complete. Every investor's situation is unique and you should consider your investment goals, risk tolerance, and time horizon before making any investment. Prior to making an investment decision, please consult with your financial advisor about your individual situation. Any hypothetical examples are for illustration purposes only. Actual investor results will vary. Raymond James does not provide legal or tax services. Please discuss these matters with the appropriate professional.